Welcome. What follows is a conversation chiefly between Paul Jacob and Joseph, a Taiwanese man living in Norway. There is some discussion of the images that appear on screen in the video version, which can be found on YouTube and other venues, but the images are not the key to the discussion, so this audio version certainly remains useful. For more information, see the column written by Paul on his website, thisiscommonsense.org, for the date of August 5, 2021. Paul presents this conversation as a bonus track on the This Week in Common Sense podcast. I want to welcome everybody. This is a special Common Sense podcast. Uh, my name is Paul Jacob. Here with me today is my co-host, Tim Verkula. But also we have a special guest that we're going to be talking about, uh, talking to, and, uh, and about some of his activities our special guest is Joseph. He is a uh, attorney, a Taiwanese attorney who is living in Norway and has been uh, going to school and working there and, um, and has run into some problems we're going to talk about uh, at length. And to get us uh, started, uh, and also just because since both uh, Joseph and Tim are captive audience, I'm going to force them to hear my commentary. It's only a couple of minutes, but uh, regular readers of Common Sense saw this several weeks ago, but it's a short way to give people a sense of what we're talking about, and then we're going to go into a lot more depth on it. Uh, this short commentary was entitled, Not Being Norway. Aren't Norwegians the good guys? Yet somehow this bastion of human rights and best democracy in the world has, since 2010, forcibly registered the nationality of Taiwanese residing in Norway as Chinese. The action is considered an act of appeasement. The news lens paraphrases Joseph, a Taiwanese lawyer based in Norway, after the Norwegian Nobel Committee angered Beijing by awarding the Peace Prize to the late human rights activist, Lu Jiabo, the same year. Norway's promotion of human rights upset the genocidal Chinese government, which had imprisoned Lu Jiabo, and which then moved to suspend trade talks with Norway and restrict exports of important commodities. It took six years of placating the Chinazis before normal diplomatic and economic relations were restored. Meanwhile, Taiwanese students living in the land of the midnight sun are demanding their right simply to be Taiwanese. Joseph formed a group, Taiwan, my name, my right, to lobby Norway's government and is now legally challenging the policy. After Norway's Supreme Court rejected their lawsuit last year, they have appealed to the European Court of Human Rights. The applicants are Taiwanese, argues Professor Jill Marshall of the University of London, failing to state this on their official documentation and instead ascribing them with an incorrect nationality, misidentifies them and violates their right to personal identity. Even as Norway denies Taiwanese identity, its own identity takes the biggest hit. Prime Minister Erna Solberg explained her 2014 snubbing of the Dalai Lama as, quote, a necessary sacrifice 
in order to show China that it's important for us to have a dialogue with them, end quote. Sacrificing what's right and just for trade deals with totalitarians is no way to be Norway. This is Common Sense. I'm Paul Jacob. Joseph, I wrote about 250, 300 words about what happened, but you've been living and, and breathing it. What do you think of that? And, and, uh, and, and how does this, you know, how does this sit with you in terms of, uh, of a kind of a, a quick update on, on what the case is? So the cause of this case, uh, obviously, from the commentary you have told to your audience, is that uh, we Taiwanese residents here in Norway are forcibly uh, being registered. That means we must identif- identify ourselves when we verify our the residence permit to the authority. We are forced to be uh, registered or identify ourselves as Chinese because uh, all the alternatives uh, during our application for to the immigration authorities here, we are asked that we can only pick or take up our nationality as uh, Kina, that means uh, China in Norwegian. So basically our national identity was, uh, was uh, canceled by the Norwegian authority because uh, we fully identify ourselves as Taiwanese and Taiwan is the only country that we want the citizenship of. So basically, this is a big humiliation against uh, all Taiwanese people here. So so, uh, generally, the Taiwanese residents here are very unsatisfied with this uh, situation. So that's why we have tried to uh, try every means we, we could to strive for our right to this personal identity to be a Taiwanese in Norway. And and we will get into kind of the step-by-step of the case here in, in, in just a little bit, um, but probably right off the bat, um, you know, let us uh, explain to our uh, listeners who won't see that, that your face is is being covered up, uh, but obviously the folks looking at the video notice that. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, why you have concerns, uh, <laughs> which I certainly share, uh, about your own personal safety and and uh, and why you're looking to, I mean, you've, you've made a very brave move by, by filing this lawsuit, but are trying to protect your identity in some way uh, uh, by having, having your, your face not shown. I think the obvious reason is that I'm afraid of being targeted by the CCP. And uh, as I uh, currently live in Oslo, which uh, uh, the right of Taiwanese are, are not so well protected, as you can see in this case. Uh, and also because I am registered as a Chinese citizen here in Norway. So me and my family really uh, afraid uh, that something might happen because uh, we initiated this case uh, to fight 
although it's legally fighting our rights, but I think uh, the the PRC authority might deem us as an enemy against the state because we are claiming that uh, we are not Taiwanese, which is basically against their uh, anti-succession law that uh, Taiwan is a part of China. So if I uh, was uh, repatriated uh, back, back to China by Norway, I might face a uh, prosecution because of violating the Chinese law, which to me is very is un, un, unjustified, of course. But uh, there is such a possibility. And also, I don't want my families to get involved because of this. Uh, uh, this is uh, this is a. Uh, a move that I want to do it myself, and I, I don't want my family's member get because of this uh, movement I initiated uh, and get some trouble, of course. To anyone who, who will use the term CCP, and I think most people who are regular readers of Common Sense will know that that's the Chinese Communist Party, but just in case anybody doesn't know, uh, there you have it. Um, one of the interesting things here that people may not appreciate is that. Uh, there have been other people who have been repatriated who, you know, who they're from Taiwan and they're sent to China. And uh, that's, you know, that uh, is a pretty serious problem, kind of like if you're an American and instead of them sending you to, you know, someplace in America, they sent you to China. It would not be a good thing. Um, and, and so I, I think that's really important. The other thing that people may not be aware of is that there are numerous cases of people who leave China, are in the United States, are a U.S. citizen, or in any other country in the world, and and have you know are, are a citizen of that country, and if they speak out against China, their family members still in China are subject to all kinds of harassment and and worse. So uh, it's a pretty serious thing, and I, I just. You know, hats off to you, Joseph, in terms of uh, your bravery and also your your good sense and compassion for your family and others that, uh, you know, to, to try to protect them as much as possible. Thank you, Paul. But uh, speaking of this, I also want to raise awareness that uh, one Taiwanese human rights activist is now detained in China simply because uh, she tried to, uh, he tried to spread some uh, democratic educational material to his Chinese friends. And actually the, the spreading was on the social media in Taiwan. So it even not, it is, the, the action did not even happen in, in, in mainland China. But still, when he traveled uh, from Hong Kong to Shenzhen in China, he was uh, arrested and then uh, suddenly vanished for a couple months. And then later, he was forced to um, televise, confessed his, uh, his crime against the, against the PRC uh, on the television. So that's very scary yes. for us Taiwanese people. Yeah. You know, I, I've written some about what's happened in Hong Kong, the protest, and then, of course, the national security law now. And one of the things that that is true is that that national security law criminalizes statements against China, mm -hmm. even if you're not in, 
in Hong Kong. In other words, if if uh, and and it's arguable that even if you're not Chinese, but said something, they could if they ever caught you, they could you know bring that against you. But yeah. but it's obvious that if you're a Hong Konger and you leave Hong Kong and say something against the CCP, that it could be ten years later and you're in a different country, and if they somehow get you. Uh, they will they will take uh, take advantage of that, and so it's a it's it's a scary scary regime. Uh, kind of puts the total in totalitarian. Um, but yes, uh, there were history that they actually arrested people outside of China. Some cases even happened like in Thailand and other uh, east eastern uh, Southeast Asian country. So you can be arrested not only within the territory of China, but even outside the border of China. Yes, yes. Um, you know, uh, we we talk about some of the different threats and and so on. Uh, and you know, it, it's since I've been following uh, what's been happening in Taiwan and and China and so on. Uh, you know the the and and know some people in Taiwan and communicate with them, especially in the last year or so. Uh, you know, right before the pandemic hit, you had uh, Chai Chai uh, Wen win uh, the the Democratic Progressive Party candidate won a second term and won it big, and uh, the DPP is very pro democracy. Uh, sees Taiwan as a separate independent country. And uh, she's always saying, well, I mean, we just are. It's pretty obvious. Uh, and I think it's, it's so good at that. But it has really led to uh, a lot of uh, attacks in the sense of um, flying 28 planes a week or so ago into Taiwanese airspace, constant threats. And, you know, the, the, the Taiwanese are... Smart people, they're tough. They've lived through this for years, uh, so you know they're not they're they're not shaking in their boots. But at the same time, it just if for, for an outsider to have a sense that that you and other people in Taiwan are having to live with these constant threats. Uh, it's I just find it very upsetting. And of course, it's not happening to me. I'm seeing it happen to somebody else. I just wondered, you know. What you might say about that? What is it like for for Taiwanese to to be living with this constant threat? Yeah, I think you might know that uh, in 1996, that uh, when we first uh, got the opportunity to elect our president, because we were just democratized at that time, actually the uh, the PRC sent missiles to the Taiwan Strait to intimidate us to directly elect our first president. So basically, uh, what we are doing uh, to sustain our independence or democracy are a constant threat against the PRC or the, or the one party uh, CCP in China, as you can say. So I believe uh, uh, what happening, what, what's, what is happening recently uh, actually has uh, raised the awareness of Taiwanese people that the threat from China could only be more and more um, imminent as long as uh, we keep our own independence and democracy. 
So uh, I'm thinking that uh, considering more and more uh, those bombers and uh, jet planes of the CC of the um, of the uh, lib, uh, lib army of uh, lib, um, the PRC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The P PLA. So they they constantly flying around the islands of Taiwan, and we uh, our uh, our pilots uh, also have to fly to accompany them in in case that they were suddenly attacked uh, our country. So you can see that there are actually chances that there become some accidents in the air if the planes fly too close to each other. So if there was an accident in the air, I'm really afraid that it would escalate to uh, something bigger or even incur a war uh, so that China can have, could have some excuse to invade Taiwan because of that. So this is something I, uh, aware I'm really uh, um, worried about recently because of these movements. And uh, what I want to uh, inform your audience is that actually we are already under attack, but it is not a very traditional uh, military attack from China. It is the uh, new modern way of attack. It is a cyber attack. Like uh, maybe you already know that how Russian attack uh, the US by sending this information to your society. And now China is doing the same thing against the Taiwanese society. So many of my, many friends of my parents, like they like uh, uh, constantly receiving false information and uh, from from some um, farm content websites that that uh, spread uh, like uh, false information about the pandemic. So that make them worried or or untrust our own government. So it kind of split our society and 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 and. And, and deepen the generation gap of uh, of our society. So that's also scary of uh, how they kind of uh, make use of our freedom and democracy to attack our country. Yes, and and uh, I, I wanted to get in and ask you kind of to tell a little bit about yourself, how you you know grew up, uh, where in Taiwan you're from, that that sort of thing. But then let, let me also ask you after you uh, tell us just a little bit about that to give us a little bit of a history lesson in terms of you mentioned the generational difference. And I'll I'll give folks kind of the headline uh, aspect of it, which is that Taiwan after uh, the, the Civil War. And of course, um, we'll get into a little bit about the fact that Taiwan is a lot more than just the people who came over after the Civil War, uh, who came over from China. I mean, there's already a country there and millions of people. Uh, but but um, tell us a little bit about after you just give give me some idea of kind of how you grew up, where you're from, and that sort of thing uh, about that generational divide because you had four decades after uh, the, the Chinese Civil War of martial law, a very authoritarian uh, uh, government in Taiwan. And then the people kept pushing and, and ended up creating a very free and vibrant democratic country, and uh, which I would argue, just for a little 
uh, insert here is I think the, the, the most inspiring story of going from really serious authoritarian government to a free society in, in modern times. And I think, uh, you know, I, I just think it's so important that people realize what the people of Taiwan have done. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's night and day. It's arguably the most free democratic country in Asia. And literally, you know, three or four decades ago, it was a completely authoritarian, if not totalitarian type government. So uh, with all that set up, now I'm going to let you talk, Joseph. Yes, thank you, Paul. Um, yeah, I can I can briefly introduce myself. Um, I was born in Taipei, the capital of our country, but later my family moved to Taichung, which is in the middle of the island, but uh, the, the second largest city in population currently. Um, so I basically grew up there in this uh, middle city of Taiwan. And uh, I later went to Taipei to study laws at the National Taiwan University and then got my bachelor degree there. And uh, I also passed the bar exam in the same year of my graduation and then I served in the military for one year. Um, so after I, uh, after I finished my obligation in the military, um, I worked in a business law firm, actually, uh, one of the biggest business law firm in Taiwan for two and a half year as an associate lawyer. So basically, uh, my previous experience has nothing to do with my current movement here. Um, yeah, so um, talking back to the, the modern history of Taiwan, I think... Uh, uh, the experience of my generation is definitely very different from the experience of my parents' generation uh, because we are basically born in a free and democratic country and during our childhood and also the whole uh, growing experience of our, of our lives. But uh, when we learn about the history of Taiwan, of course, uh, what we learn uh, were also very different from what we parents learned because what they learned are basically uh, all about mainland China. Uh, in their time, they have to memorize all the provinces in China, even though they don't exist anymore because after the PRC took over China, the provinces was uh, totally reformed. So basically they have to uh, read, read those uh, details by heart. So it's very... Um, uh, unuseful to, in my point of view. But uh, in our generation, we have to learn. What we started to pick up is that we started to know about the real history of Taiwan, which can trace back all the way to to the Stone Age. And we have, of course, we have Aboriginal people. And then later, the Han Chinese immigrants came uh, uh, as early as in the Ming Dynasty. So that, that started our, our civilization. And then so... So basically, uh, from this kind of uh, education, uh, historical education and geographical education, we very identified ourselves as uh, native Taiwanese. And also we learned that uh, the, the Chinese Civil War happened in uh, 1949, uh, after the Second World War. Actually, it's only part 
of the Taiwanese history. Because after the the nationalists or the Kuomintang, the KMT, lost the civil war, and uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his army and government officials and their families moved to Taiwan, that makes the the modern China a part of the history of Taiwan. But it's definitely not a whole history about Taiwan. So when I uh, moved to Norway and uh, met many new new friends in in European country, and when they when we talk about Taiwan, all their image is only about the civil war between the nationalists and communists and the communist party. And that's uh, disappoint me a lot because actually what I know from my country has a lot more can be can be shown to the foreigners. It's not only that we are a historical uh, heritage of this civil war. So uh, what I mean is that um, uh, and uh, what we learn in the in the Taiwanese history is also very different from what my parents learned because they learned the history in a authoritarian uh, um, uh, uh, how to say uh, um, uh, uh, which the, the the educational material was was uh, provided by the authoritarian region, right? So what they learned uh, is very one-sided, and they don't have really have very critical thinkings about the history. So uh, at that time, many of them were kind of brainwashed that they were Chinese because uh, it was a it was a government that taught them that you can only be Chinese and not Taiwanese. Uh, in their age, many of them are even forbidden to speak uh, their modern tongue, which is Taiwanese. And so in my generation, I also was uh, affected by this policy because I I I am not very fluent a Taiwanese speaker, which is basically my 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 mother tongue. That should that should be my mother tongue. So it is a tra tra tragedy. It is a tragedy that uh, somehow we have lost we have lost our, our native culture. But it was after the democratization happening from from the seventies to eighties that uh, uh, the that we Taiwanese started to pick up our own uh, local culture and uh, languages we used to have. We used to have, and uh, it is because during the martial law time that many many of our ancestors, uh, who are political elites at that time, were uh, were uh, persecuted by the dictator and the one-party state, the authoritarian authoritarian regime at that time. So, so it was after that uh, our ancestor to strive for our own democracy and freedom through all kinds of social movements that people start to uh, be aware that uh, actually we have our own culture. And so let's come up. That's why uh, uh, we and our later generations start to know that actually we possess the identity of Taiwanese. Which is uh, which, of course, the the culture, the Chinese culture has uh, has some influence to this identity, but basically, uh, it is just a part of us. Not the we don't identify as ourselves as Chinese anymore. So, to our generation, these uh, democratic values and liberal values has very has many connections to this identity. I can say that. Yeah. It it is interesting that 
that for most people who aren't up on the history of Taiwan, and most people aren't, uh, especially especially outside of Taiwan in the United States, people are all about there was a civil war and and part of China's on the mainland and the other part of China's on Taiwan as if nobody was living there beforehand. Yeah. And uh, as I understand it from what I've read, when Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist forces came on to uh, uh, Taiwan, they represented about 12% of the population. So you can see that, wait a second, there's the, the bulk of the population was already there. And other, other people might say, okay, but they were Chinese before that, right? Well, for 50 years before that, they were under Japanese control. Yeah. And now for most of Asia, if you think about being under imperial Japan's control, it isn't a very nice story. And I'm not I'm not pretending that the Japanese were always kind to every single person in Taiwan. Yeah. But the truth is they saw Taiwan, uh, as I understand it, as in their sphere, because, of course, it's in that island chain that includes Japan and Taiwan and the Philippines and 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 so they looked to bring Taiwan into Japan not not as a colony somewhere but as part of Japan and and what happened is you had 50 years of a lot of building and infrastructure and and it was a fairly uh, you know a, a lot of progress was made in Taiwan um, and so today there's there's real friendship between Japan and Taiwan in a way that there's not between Japan and China or Japan and Korea, and uh, and and so it's it it's not this okay there was a civil war and that's what split it up. China historically was never very involved in Taiwan. They claimed it. Uh, a lot of Han Chinese people m- moved there for a, a new adventure and a new place to live. But uh, but anyway, it, it, the the history of it, because I knew nothing before two years ago, I I came to an event in Taiwan and decided, oh, I should probably read a history book, and I was fascinated about the history of Taiwan, and it was all stuff I did not know, and it, and it's important because, you know, you've got China saying, hey, this is ours. And, you know, if you don't know anything, you kind of think, well, yeah, there was a civil war, it split off. It's not as simple as that. And of course, the the other aspect of that is that uh, there was a, a column uh, in, in the U.S. recently that uh, the columnist asked, who does uh, Taiwan belong to? And his argument was, was kind of one of these big geopolitical things. And I thought, well, my goodness, it belongs to the people of Taiwan. Who else could it belong to? And that's the that's the other part of this story is that over this period of history, more and more, and friends I have in Taiwan, not only do they feel that identity, but even their parents have really changed in the level of identity and because it's no longer being suppressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it, it's very interesting. And, and thanks for that, that history lesson. The other aspect of that uh, is for people to realize there was a major event in Taiwan called the 228 uh, uh, incident. 
And it was the nationalists who came in to police Taiwan after World War II. And there was an incident where they beat up a woman. And then I think there was a response that the soldiers were beaten up for beating up the woman. It ended up leaving thousands of people dead. and it was the precursor for the white terror and decades of martial law and, and people being disappeared and, and being held without charge and everything else. Uh, but it tends to show that as the nationalists came over, this was not just another part of China that everything was gonna be hunky-dory. It was a separate place. So anyway, I I, I think for our listeners, Joseph, that history is really, really important. Um, so what, what, what then brought you to, to Norway? As I told your audience that I work in a business law firm, but uh, during my uh, experience there, I was not so satisfied by serving the, the corporations and white-collar executives. That's, I, f- I felt that that's not what I want for my whole career. So and I still have a deep interest in uh, criminal policy. Uh, actually, it has lasted since I started in laws in the university years. So I feel that I want to pursue an academic career in this area. So then I figured out that actually Norway is one of the best country in this uh, area. Uh, as I show you uh, in the video that how they compare the criminal policy criminal system, uh, prison or the prison system of uh, the US and Norway. Basically, they focus on rehabilitation and restorative justice. That is, uh, at that time, I really want to learn about. So that's why, that's basically the main reason why I came to Norway in 2015 to learn, uh, to took the human rights master program of this country. Uh And uh, yeah. So and, and now maybe you might be teaching a little bit of that <laughs> in terms of your your lawsuit certainly is I think a lesson in in human rights. So thank you, Paul. So let let's uh, we've we've uh, we've we've delved into a lot of parts of this, but let's delve into directly into this lawsuit and and as I understand it, you you uh, kind of tell people how you brushed up against this problem and and forming the Taiwan, you know, my name, my right group and and the lawsuit that has followed from that. It was during my stay and study in Norway that I finally aware and realized that I was forced to register as a Chinese citizen. So during my time in New York, in Norway, I constantly feel that uh, uh, it's a very bizarre feeling for me to stay in this country, even though I really love this country, to be honest. I love the people here and the nature and the environment, all in all, and how they how they treat me generally are very well uh, as, as a foreigner, what I can be honestly say. But still, the, register, the registration against my identity play a very big part of me uh, to initiate this movement. Um, so, uh, like for example, uh, when I was 
study in the human rights program. We had party and, and with my uh, Norwegian classmates and also classmates from other countries. And we have we played a drinking game and that we have to take turn to name a capital of uh, of of one country of the world. And when it it was my turn to name to name the capital, I just uh, instantly shout out uh, Taipei as a capital. But then my Norwegian classmate instantly correct me that actually Taipei is not a capital because they don't think uh, Taiwan is a country. And it was at that time that I was uh, in total shock that uh, wow, so my country was not really recognized as a as a true country by the international community. So it is from all these kind of trivial experience that has uh, kind of motivated me that I have to do something to tell the world that actually my uh, Taiwan is in fact a country. It has satisfied all the uh, criteria of a state under the international law. So after I got my resident permits and, and waiting for the response of my Taiwanese representative uh, in Norway, that's that they are dealing with this issue. Still, I kind of uh, want to do something uh, from my own side. So I posted a proposal on the Facebook page called uh, Taiwanese in uh, Nordic countries. And then uh, it got a lot of uh, 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 replies that they also face the same issues. And they, want to, they also want to join me uh, to do something because I was a lawyer at that time. And then I proposed that maybe we can do some legal actions against this decision to, to, to seek a legal remedy. So after that, uh, we formed a group that's uh, discussing how we can initiate this movement. And then after I also discuss with my professor in the human rights program, and also I discuss with the Norwegian local lawyers, they all encouraged me that, uh, that it is something I can, I can do as a, as, a, as a lawyer, as a people who knows about law. So we filed uh, our first complaint uh, against the uh, UDI, which means the Norwegian Immigration Authority, uh, in 2016. Um, sorry, uh, it's 2017. Uh, so that's our first uh, formal movement against the Norwegian government. And afterward, you can see that uh, they, the official response from the, the Norwegian authorities are very uh, solid and without uh, any flexibility that uh, they simply uh, replied that because they don't recognize Taiwan as a state, so there is no way that they can register we Taiwanese as citizens of Taiwan. But uh, even after we raised the examples that uh, actually the U.S does not recognize Taiwan's state, and also other European countries and even Nordic countries like Finland, Sweden, according to the experience of my compatriot in those countries, they got the citizenship and nationality of Taiwan. So there must be a more flexible way in registration of, of your residence the nationality. It not always have to stick to the the diplomatic uh, or the foreign policies of your country, because it's, it has different uh, purpose. You know, the registration of uh, citizenship of uh, people in your country, actually, you have to respect 
their warm wheel and the, their their uh, what they actually come from. And it also serves the purpose that uh, in many dif different administrative uh, uh, goals, like uh, uh, for example, we Taiwanese don't need a visa to get into Norway. We can simply use our Taiwanese passport uh, to get into Norway. On the other hand, uh, people from China, the PRC China, they need to apply for visa to get into Norway. So actually, there are huge uh, po uh, policy distinction uh, between these two group of people. So, so for so actually, the registration of citizenship should serve for this purpose, not to serve the purpose of your diplomatic policy. That's another issue. As you can see, the U.S. and also other European countries do it in in this way. So why can you just follow how 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 they how they treat Taiwanese people? And also, Taiwanese people are very satisfied with this registration. So it's a win-win situation. Why not do that? But still, uh, the Norwegian uh, authorities were very stubborn about this issue. And I believe you are later introduced about the because of the. Nobel Peace Prize instance, they are very afraid of to irritate China again. So I think they are very sensitive about something relevant to to recognize Taiwan as a country. So so they just just simply keep uh, refuting our request and, and, and say that our claims are clearly unfounded. And let me just jump in real quick to uh, to point out that as, as we talked about before, there was the Nobel Peace Prize, which seemed to be around the same time. And, and a lot of people have said that kind of, you know, made the Chinese angry. So it's, uh, you know, the the uh, Norwegian government actually uh, picks the Nobel Peace Prize committee. The committee is then independent, but it is picked by the government. And so when they uh, nominated uh, Liu Jiabo, uh, they, you know, China was not happy at all, and that seems to have been what precipitated a pretty big economic fight, like uh, uh, embargoing, uh, you know, no longer accepting any salmon from from uh, Norway, and and I think Norway was selling seventy five percent of their salmon to to China. So there was some real economic uh, battle here, and and uh, it, when we were discussing before. You know, you mentioned that that in essence, um, this battle with Norway, where Norway does the right thing in terms of being pro-human rights, and then pays a price for it. You know, no good deed goes unpunished. And but that in at the end of this, that in essence, China has to be pretty happy with the way its policy played out. And and before you go on to kind of the rest of the story. You know, can you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah. So after uh, about six years of uh, froze between the froze of the relationship between the two countries, uh, they finally came to a deal, which is called a joint statement of normalization of bilateral uh, relations, uh, which has which was announced by the two uh, minister of foreign affairs of the two countries. And so whereupon the Norwegian government uh, have 
to reiterate that uh, its commitment to the one China policy and fully respect China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. And they also have to attach high importance to China's core interest, which is very vague and major concerns. And they will not support actions that undermine them and will do its best to avoid any future damage to the bilateral relations. And then after the press conference, the Chinese Minister of Foreign Affairs, Wang Yi, uh, announced in Chinese that the Norwegian side has deeply reflected on the reasons that undermine mutual trust between the two sides. So basically that means uh, from, the, from the Chinese view, the Norwegian, the Norwegian government has said sorry to China because their Nobel Peace Prize Committee gave the prize to Liu Xiaobo. So I don't yes. know whether the Norwegian audience get got that point in this in that timing, but uh, I think it is a very uh, it's a very nice propaganda for the PR for the PRC government to 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 their local nationalists that they want to fight in this <laughs> in yes. this uh, diplomatic battle. So basically, like what you said, uh, the Norwegian government has knuckled under uh, because of this incident. So it's very it's very sad to me as a human rights activist and and who learned about human rights and also came to Norway because of uh, we know that this is country with, uh, who are which are famous for these values, who fought, who fought for freedom and also uh, the liberal values like dem democracy, rule of law, and human rights. But after this joint statement uh, between the two countries, I felt that uh, I really need to do something for my identity and also show in case the, the Norwegian government keep Banding to China in the future, so I I I started to raise funding uh, in Taiwan, and also I was invited to the U.S. to give a uh, speaking tour in California to raise funding uh, from my Taiwanese compatriot there, and so uh, it was in uh, 2018 that what that we have raised uh, about like. Uh, uh, 335 uh, million uh, new Taiwanese dollars, uh, which is uh, about, um, let me check. Uh, 150,000 US, something like yes. that? Yeah. Yes. So it was at that time we had a good chunk of change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that means we can go for it and recruit our Norwegian lawyer. So after one year, we officially filed this lawsuit to the Oslo District Court. And yeah, um, basically to ask the court to confirm that uh, by registering our citizenship as uh, Kina, the Norwegian government has infringed our right to personal identity unless unless uh, violated the Articles of Privacy in uh, ICCPR, ECHR, and the Norwegian Constitution. And then afterwards, uh, we were, uh, our, our case was dismissed by the district court uh, because uh, of the same reason that was given by the immigration authorities, that uh, because they don't, they don't recognize Taiwan as a state, and also because of the UN resolution um, 
2758 that they no longer recognize uh, the Chang uh, the Chang's representative as the legal uh, representative of China. So they cannot uh, register as a citizen of Taiwan. But ironically uh, and and factually, uh, the UN General Assembly Resolution 2758 has not has no words about Taiwan. It never says that whether Taiwan is a part of China. Right. It actually only dealt with the legal and legitimate representative of China at that time. So. So actually, to, to base their justification on this resolution is totally foundless, in my point of view. But still, they base their reasons on this resolution. And then we, of course, appeal to the high court. And basically, the, the, the second sentence say the same thing as the first sentence. And that uh, they think that to register us as Chinese citizens has nothing to do with our rights and obligations in Norway. But actually, it does because uh, when we apply for for our visa, like like I said, uh, when we when we move when we when we travel to Norway, we don't have to show apply for a visa. We only need to show our passport. So if we are if we are misidentified as Chinese, then that will cause us problem because they will, the customs might ask us to provide our visa, and we have to clarify that actually we are from Taiwan and you have different policy to Taiwanese people. So actually it, it, it does affect our rights and obligation in Norway. It's obvious yes. that, they, that they see you as different or, or they, wouldn't, they wouldn't treat you differently yes. in that way. So it, it is a, it's a double standard on yes. their part. That's true. That's true. And like like I said, it's make me more vulnerable to be repatriated to China if I was if I am a Chinese citizen, from the point of view, and that would cause me grave danger if I was uh, repatriated to China. I may I may face a prosecution or detention there. Yeah. So there are actually some human rights concerns due to this registration. But still, the High Court and the Supreme Court consecutively has just uh, dismissed our case. And even during the judicial procedure, we have never got the chance to speak for ourselves in the court. It was only uh, written um, briefs between the two parties. And we, are never given, we were never given the opportunity for oral hearing directly to the judge and to say that why we want to claim our right to personal identity in this case. So to us as plaintiffs of this case, we think this is very, very unfair trial against, against us. And so these are all also uh, addressed in our application to the European Court of Human Rights. So both the right to personal identity and right to a fair trial was our uh, legal claims in this uh, application to the European Court. So after our, our after we exhausted all the domestic remedies uh, last November, we got the six six months uh, deadline of the European Court of Human Rights to submit our application there. So during this period, I tried to find some lawyers outside of Norway to kind of think to to find find someone who can who could help us think outside of the box because I think that's basically we I think we have already done everything during the legal 
procedure in Norway. And then we finally found uh, 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 the, the English lawyer, uh, Skona Jolie. Uh, he is a Queen's counsel, so, and very famous in this area of human rights, especially privacy. So we finally decided to recruit her. Oh yeah, by the way, she is also the the chair of the of the of the bar uh, human rights committee of uh, England and, and Wales. So she is very famous in this area and she is very willing and eager to help us out in this case. And actually she had brought a lot of creative uh, and new thoughts to this case. So uh, after our application we feel positive and promising about this case, but still, we are also uh, very nervous that the, the court might did might do the same thing as the Norwegian courts that just don't admit that we are right are being has been have been uh, violated. So we are kind of uh, looking forward to it, but nervous at the same time. You mentioned that uh, to me that that there are 47 countries that are part that that basically are bound by uh, the rulings of this uh, European Court on Human Rights, and um, and so it it could have a big impact on all these. Uh, how many how many of these countries? Are there similar problems like Norway in terms of, of how Taiwanese, uh, you know, uh, residents in their country might have to fill out paperwork and, and identify themselves and, and how many are, are you know, are, don't have a problem? You know what, Paulette, actually we have uh, done uh, questionnaires to our followers, uh, Facebook followers, and asked them to provide photos of their resident cards. Uh, by then I mean the Taiwanese residents in other European countries. And then we received about uh, 17 European uh, residents uh, who are citizens of, of Taiwan. And then uh, we figured out that only Norway and Spain that register Taiwanese as Chinese. So that means uh, other 15 European states register, register uh, Taiwan or Taiwanese, or they have more flexible way. Like uh, in, in Luxembourg, they register Taiwanese as Chinese, but with a Brexit of uh, Taiwan after, after Chinese. Right. And right. then like, like in Romania, they register us somewhere in Asia. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're right. <laughs> but still creative, right? Yeah. So, so I mean, at least they try to separate that we are different citizens than the Chinese citizens. I, yes. I mean, this is this is already what we are acceptable to this decision if we can got from the Norwegian authorities. So you can see it was only Norway and and Spain that uh, do do this odd thing against Chinese people. So, and and. And maybe you might know, no, no European country recognized Taiwan as a, as a sovereign state except Vatican, Vatican, the whole, right. the, yeah. So, so actually they, they, they have the same one China principle as Norway, right. as Norway have. So I don't know why Norway has to do such a different way to treat Taiwanese people. Yeah, something to do with the peace price incident. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, it certainly shows that that you know everybody else can do it except for Spain and Norway. So, um, you also in an interview I saw a, a little video uh, where you were interviewed and talking about this. Um, someone asked, well, you know, the, the, there's the upside that, of course, this could be policy for these 47 countries in Europe. But the downside is maybe you lose the case, as you mentioned, you're, you're nervous, uh, it could go either way. But mm. you made an argument that it's a victory, even if you lose at the ECHR, the European Court of Human Rights. And and what you said, I thought, really was spot on, was it, it made so much sense because I work in politics and everyone wants to win always. And then, and usually it's not about as important as stuff as this. It might be about the tax rate or some measure on some local ballot or something, but we always want to win. And we're scared to do something sometimes if we don't think we'll win. And yet some of the biggest things and most important things in the world and in our lives, uh, we don't know whether we're going to win. But we have to do them anyway. Anyway, you had uh, I won't I won't steal all the all the thunder of what you said, but I really liked your answer to that. So what happens if you if you lose this case and is it still a worthwhile case to have, have brought? Yes, of course, because I always believe the action itself speaks louder than the result. And I think it is the movement that we initiated that can inspire people, especially my Taiwanese compatriots, to do the same thing for our country. And then so I think our movement is only a small puzzle of a bigger movement of all Taiwanese people in the bigger picture. So to me, that even if we couldn't nail it in this case, at least we have shown uh, a counter force against uh, Chinese pressure in the, uh, to the democratic world. And I hope that uh, this could be uh, one example for other Taiwanese and encourages them to challenge the unfair treatment of Taiwan by the international community because of China. And uh, so, and even in the big picture that Taiwan couldn't become a normal country like others, I still hope that this case could be a part of the history that a small democracy try to try to fight against the biggest authoritarian regime at that time. And then um, sadly that some democratic countries has uh, assisted this authoritarian regime. And then we failed, but nevertheless, we tried our best. Beautifully uh, said. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I think people know more about Taiwan today than they did a couple of years ago. And, <clears throat> and I don't know if I'm just kind of, it's my own experience that I'm talking about or whether that's really the way the world is. But a couple of years ago, I visited, I'd always known about it, but I knew none of the history. I didn't have any real sense of, of what Taiwan was all about and so on. But since I returned, of course, You've had this pandemic, which I think has not only shown Taiwan to have a, a government and a society that's cohesive and that's smart and, and functions, uh, but it also showed China to be a, a government that hides the truth, 
that arrest doctors who were trying to speak out and help people all over the world that, I mean, it was just night and day. And, and here in the U S there were some reports in different publications about, well, China's really handled this so well. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? You know, and they handled it terribly, but, um, but I think over the course of it, it's so proved without without anybody, you know, browbeating anyone that, hey, isn't Taiwan great and hasn't China done a terrible job? People saw it for themselves. And so I think there has been a little bit more uh, of, a, of a sense that, wait a second, oh, now I understand Taiwan's an independent country and there's this fight, you know, China wants to take them over but that they had something to kind of define Taiwan uh, for them. And I just wonder, because, you know, you're, you're traveling around the world, you're in, in Norway, uh, I'm sure you've been other places in Europe. Um, do you see that? Do you think people have started to pick up a little bit more, I guess, on, on both sides of that coin, on the fact that Taiwan, uh, that they understand a little bit more what it is and, and how well it it has has developed and then also that they understand that there's a big problem with china yes of course there there are some changes happening uh, also in europe but i don't think taiwan got the uh, uh, coverage uh in europe like like we got in the us uh still because of geopolitics uh the european countries does not care so much what is happening uh in the south china sea and also taiwan and also hong kong xinjiang tibet because uh because when they can earn a lot of profits uh by not standing for least minority people then why why and 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 if they if they keep do if if they keep silence then then they, they can still can earn a lot of profits from Chinese markets, so why would they stand for them, you know? Uh, and and to to be honest, uh, those bad behaviors of China, uh, from their point of view, don't have direct consequence to their interest. So from my point of view, uh, I think the change. Uh, might happen. That's as people started to rec uh, to, to recognize the values that Taiwan presents. But I think uh, the the supports uh, of the support for Taiwan would uh, uh, would happen only very slowly, and probably only in a very superficial way. As long as the ideas that we have to keep cooperating with the PRC and then so that we won't face another cold war. This kind of theory persists in European politicians. I don't think there will be any fundamental change or radical change for Taiwanese people uh, and, there, and, uh, and especially in European society. Uh, uh, from, from what I experienced, many of my Europeans just uh, view Taiwan as part of the confrontation between the U.S. and China. Yeah, so even human, human rights learner, they, they, uh, for them it is hard for it is it is hard for them to understand from the point of view of lost people being repressed by China, because uh, it's. Uh, I think if I were them, maybe I would have 
very little sympathy to those people as well because uh yeah uh maybe it is the bad thing our country currently can do but still i i i still i do still think that some idealistic values should be pursued uh outside of this uh utilitarian utilitarian thinking and i think even in the utilitarian utilitarian thinking it is very uh short-sighted because uh, absolutely uh, the, the damage of those uh, universal values would have some uh, negative costs even to Europe in the long, in the long run. And then I, I would say that uh, China would also try to uh, extend their sharp power to other European countries, not only in Norway, but if they keep, uh, if they if they keep feeling that there were so less uh, um, um, pressure from the democratic uh, group, then they will keep doing it anyway. Yeah. Right. So to me, that's uh, even the freedom of speech and self-censored what happened in European society. If China has such a strong influence and we keep allowing them to do so. And, and again, it's hard to know you know, whether everybody else feels the same things I feel, but I thought uh, uh, about a year ago when the NBA, the National Basketball Association, uh, had the problems because somebody spoke out and said we ought to stand with Hong Kong, which I don't know how any freedom-loving person wouldn't stand with Hong Kong. Um, and you saw all kinds of people, the, the best basketball player in the world, LeBron James, saying, hey, uh, we shouldn't be saying anything about this and, and so on. And I think it was a little bit of a wake-up call for people in the U.S. to realize that this sports franchise that we think of as ours is ready to sell out all our values to go make a bunch of money in China. And I have nothing against people making a lot of money. I'd like to make money. I, I'm glad when somebody else does. But if we don't have a sense that freedom is more important than a buck you can make today, we won't be free for very long. And yeah. and so it's it's uh, uh, I I look at it. I, I in visiting Taiwan, I'm a big fan, and I didn't I didn't get to visit any beaches. I mean, I was mainly in rooms talking to people. I didn't get to visit beaches. I didn't get to hike any of the mountains or anything. So I'm, I, I, I'm ready to go back. But I, I, I fell in love with the country. But the, the truth is, supporting Taiwan has nothing that you, as an American, as a European, as anybody anywhere on this planet, it doesn't have to have anything to do with Taiwan because those values are under attack today. And they're under attack by China. And when we say by China, we don't mean the Chinese people, because the Chinese people, at, by every indication from Tiananmen Square to, to protests that have happened even this year, they want the same freedom we all want. Yes. But that regime is super dangerous. And here in the U.S., we're fighting over the over the origin of, of the COVID-19 and we've got Facebook shutting down what somebody wants to say. And we've got YouTube shutting down things that don't agree with the World Health Organization. And, and so I think in the U.S. There, there is a growing, at least, sense that, wait a second, we're, we've gotten the wrong place here. 
And and so hopefully there'll be some pushback. But I think I think it's going to be very important that that Europe wake up as well, uh, because it's it's a, this is a big problem. Uh, and and, you know, Taiwan needs not only the help of the U.S., but I think we could use the help of people all over the world who love freedom. Yeah. So geographically, we Taiwan is in the forefront uh, against the authoritarian regime. But in this modern world, I think uh, the distance of of either either uh, of all two countries are almost the same in this modern world because uh, the work can happen in in the internet, and then there was the border would be more and more vague in the future. So any attack against democracy could happen, even you live very far away from China. So I mean, the thinking of geopolitics actually should also change in the in the international order, and then uh, uh, to to keep silence or or what we said uh, being uh, being uh, to keep appeasement to China wouldn't save yourself from this uh, war between democracy and authoritarian regimes. I think that's very well said, Joseph. I uh, I so appreciate you taking the time. I know it's late where you are and, and you probably had a long day. Taking the time to, to talk to people, uh, hats off for the courage to bring this and uh, and the good sense to do it in such a way that you're you're creating uh, a greater movement for freedom. I appreciate it very much. I um, I also am very impressed that I think your English is about as good as mine, and I guarantee you <clears throat> that my <clears throat> Mandarin Chinese is not anywhere close to as good as yours. Because I don't I don't know that <clears throat> I, I choked up here. I don't know that I can say anything, but I'm going to try to say one thing, which I heard the uh, Czechoslovakian senator. Uh, it's, it's not it's a Czech now since they split up uh, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. So I got that wrong. But he came to Taiwan and he said, I am Taiwanese. But he said it in Chinese. He said, Wo Shi Taiwan Ren. And I know I butchered that some, but I almost got it right. Anyway, uh, I just want to say, so appreciate what you're doing. And frankly, as you pointed out in in your closing comments, we're all in this together. Uh, It's all about the values of freedom and democracy and and people being able to live their lives without some authoritarian telling them they can't. And uh, so in that way, I think we're all Taiwanese and a real pleasure to meet you. And thanks for for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast and to share my experience to your audience, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph. Tim, do you have any uh, any comments? You've been uh, you've been surprisingly quiet. But of course, uh, this has been very interesting to listen to. So I have lots of questions about the legality of your focus on identity. Yeah, because obviously you have a there's a point in European law that Americans probably don't understand. And maybe if you could explain that briefly, maybe that would be worthwhile. Because, I mean, you've talked about your identity as a, as a key focus, but that's a point in law you're going for, right? Um, because the case is still ongoing, so I really cannot talk about too much details 
publicly. But still, I can say that uh, both the EU at least share the same one-China policy as the U.S. And then also the NATO share the same policy against China. And also Norway is a part of NATO. So to me, that obviously there should not make no difference in treating Taiwanese uh, because uh, both uh, the European country, especially the Western European countries, share the same values as the U.S. Even though U.S. has more uh, supportive uh, law and bills like uh, Taiwan Relations Act, but still the EU uh, Parliament has made a lot of resolutions to support the positive participa participation of Taiwan in the international organizations. And they, in their resolutions, they also call us as citizens of Taiwan. So even based on uh, the policy of EU of its own, that uh, I don't think there is some legal basis for Norway to not recognize the citizenship of Taiwan, even though they don't recognize Taiwan as a state, like the US and other European countries does. Okay, thanks. That makes more sense. Thank you. Well, uh... This has been uh, a special podcast for Common Sense. Uh, uh, Joseph, thanks again so much. Uh, Tim, thank you. And uh, we'll be back this weekend with This Week in Common Sense. Uh, but I think folks will enjoy and learn something uh, from, from this hour we just spent. Thank you, both Paul and Tim. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph. I just wanted to give a very special thank you out to the Taiwan Digital Diplomacy Association for all their excellent assistance in putting this podcast together. The Taiwan Digital Diplomacy Association advocates and facilitates participatory public diplomacy. It's a mouthful. It's a lot of work, but they're good at it. This nonprofit group of young people initiates multinational projects to strengthen Taiwanese partnerships with other countries, especially by creating digital content and hosting real-life events that engage young people and international NGOs located in Taiwan. Thank you very much for all your help. If you want more information about the Taiwan Digital Diplomacy Association, you'll see it up on your screen. It'll also be in the information part underneath the video on YouTube. Also, if you want more information about my name, my right, that information is also up on your screen and will be in the information below the video at YouTube. Thank you. After this podcast was recorded, the European Court of Human Rights rejected the appeal filed by Joseph and other Taiwanese living in Norway. Taiwan's Central News Agency reports, quote, Joseph said that he is evaluating the possibility of filing a complaint with the UN Human Rights Commission, unquote.